This is Chapter 41 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 41 Captain Nye was very ill indeed, with spasmodic rheumatism, but the old gentleman was himself, which is to say, he was kind-hearted and agreeable when comfortable, but a singularly violent wildcat when things did not go well. He would be smiling along pleasantly enough when a sudden spasm of his disease would take him and he would go out of his smile into a perfect fury. He would groan and wail and howl with the anguish, and fill up the odd chinks with the most elaborate profanity that strong convictions and a fine fancy could contrive. With fair opportunity he could swear very well and handle his adjectives with considerable judgment, but when the spasm was on him it was painful to listen to him, he was so awkward. However, I had seen him nurse a sick man himself, and put up patiently with the inconveniences of the situation, and consequently I was willing that he should have full license now that his own turn had come. He could not disturb me, with all his raving and ranting, for my mind had work on hand, and it labored on diligently, night and day, whether my hands were idle or employed. I was altering and amending the plans for my house, and thinking over the propriety of having the billiard-room in the attic, instead of on the same floor with the dining-room. Also I was trying to decide between green and blue for the upholstery of the drawing-room, for, although my preference was blue, I feared it was a color that would be too easily damaged by dust and sunlight. Likewise, while I was content to put the coachman in a modest livery, I was uncertain about a footman. I needed one, and was even resolved to have one, but wished he could properly appear and perform his functions out of livery, for I somewhat dreaded so much show. And yet, inasmuch as my late grandfather had had a coachman and such things, but no liveries, I felt rather drawn to beat him, or beat his ghost at any rate. I was also systematizing the European trip, and managed to get it all laid out as to route and length of time to be devoted to it, everything with one exception, namely, whether to cross the desert from Cairo to Jerusalem per camel, or go by sea to Beirut and thence down through the country per caravan. Meantime I was writing to the friends at home every day, instructing them concerning all my plans and intentions, and directing them to look up a handsome homestead for my mother, and agree upon a price for it against my coming, and also directing them to sell my share of the Tennessee land, and tender the proceeds to the Widows and Orphans Fund of the Typographical Union, of which I had long been a member in good standing. This Tennessee land had been in the possession of the family many years, and promised to confer high fortune upon us some day. It still promises it, but in a less violent way. When I had been nursing the captain nine days, he was somewhat better, but very feeble. During the afternoon we lifted him into a chair and gave him an alcoholic vapor-bath, and then set about putting him on the bed again. We had to be exceedingly careful, for the least jar produced pain. Gardner had his shoulders, and I his legs. In an unfortunate moment I stumbled, and the patient fell heavily on the bed in an agony of torture. I never heard a man swear so in my life. He raved like a maniac, and tried to snatch a revolver from the table, but I got it. He ordered me out of the house, and swore a world of oaths that he would kill me wherever he caught me when he got on his feet again. It was simply a passing fury, and meant nothing. 
I knew he would forget it in an hour, and maybe be sorry for it, too, but it angered me a little at the moment, so much so, indeed, that I determined to go back to Esmeralda. I thought he was able to get along alone now, since he was on the war-path. I took supper, and as soon as the moon rose, began my nine-mile journey on foot. Even millionaires needed no horses in those days, for a mere nine-mile jaunt without baggage. As I raised the hill overlooking the town, it lacked fifteen minutes of twelve. I glanced at the hill over beyond the canyon, and in the bright moonlight saw what appeared to be about half the population of the village massed on and around the wide west croppings. My heart gave an exulting bound, and I said to myself, They have made a new strike tonight, and struck it richer than ever, no doubt. I started over there, but gave it up. I said the strick would keep, and I had climbed hill enough for one night. I went on down through the town, and as I was passing a little German bakery, a woman ran out and begged me to come in and help her. She said her husband had a fit. I went in, and judged she was right. He appeared to have a hundred of them, compressed into one. Two Germans were there, trying to hold him, and not making much of a success of it. I ran up the street half a block or so, and routed out a sleeping doctor, brought him down half-dressed, and we four wrestled with the maniac, and doctored, and drenched, and bled him for more than an hour, and the poor German woman did the crying. He grew quiet now, and the doctor and I withdrew and left him to his friends. It was a little after one o'clock. As I entered the cabin door, tired but jolly, the dingy light of a tallow-candle revealed Higby, sitting by the pine-table, gazing stupidly at my note, which he held in his fingers, and looking pale, old, and haggard. I halted and looked at him. He looked at me, stolidly. I said, "'Higby, what—what is it?' "'We're ruined. We didn't do the work. The blind leads relocated.' It was enough. I sat down sick, grieved broken-hearted indeed. A minute before I was rich and brimful of vanity. I was a pauper now, and very meek. We sat still an hour, busy with thought, busy with vain and useless self-upbraidings, busy with, why didn't I do this, and why didn't I do that? But neither spoke a word. Then we dropped into mutual explanations, and the mystery was cleared away. It came out that Higby had depended on me as I had on him, and as both of us had on the foreman. The folly of it, it was the first time that ever stayed and steadfast Higby had left an important matter to chance, or failed to be true to his full share of a responsibility. But he had never seen my note till this moment, and this moment was the first time he had been in the cabin since the day he had seen me last. He also had left a note for me, on that same fatal afternoon, had ridden up on horseback, and looked through the window, and, being in a hurry and not seeing me, had tossed the note into the cabin through a broken pane. Here it was, on the floor, where it had remained undisturbed for nine days. Don't fail to do the work before the ten days expire. W. has passed through and given me notice. I am to join him at Mono Lake, and we shall go on from there to-night. He says he will find it this time, sure. Cal. W. meant Whiteman, of course that thrice-accursed cement. That was the way of it. An old miner like Higby could no more withstand the fascination of a mysterious mining excitement like this cement foolishness than he would refrain from eating when he was famishing. Higby had been dreaming about the marvelous cement for months, and now, 
Against his better judgment he had gone off and taken the chances on my keeping secure a mine worth a million undiscovered cement veins. They had not been followed this time. His riding out of town in broad daylight was such a commonplace thing to do that it had not attracted any attention. He said they prosecuted their search in the fastnesses of the mountains during nine days without success. They could not find the cement. Then a ghastly fear came over him that something might have happened to prevent the doing of the necessary work to hold the blind lead, though indeed he thought such a thing hardly possible, and forthwith he started home with all speed. He would have reached Esmeralda in time, but his horse broke down and he had to walk a great part of the distance. And so it happened that as he came into Esmeralda by one road I entered it by another. His was the superior energy, however, for he went straight to the wide west, instead of turning aside as I had done, and he arrived there about five or ten minutes too late. The notice was already up, the relocation of our mind completed beyond recall, and the crowd rapidly dispersing. He learned some facts before he left the ground. The foreman had not been seen about the streets since the night we had located the mine. A telegram had called him to California on a matter of life and death, it was said. At any rate, he had done no work, and the watchful eyes of the community were taking note of the fact. At midnight of this woeful tenth day, the ledge would be relocatable, and by eleven o'clock the hill was black with men prepared to do the relocating. That was the crowd I had seen when I fancied a new strike had been made. Idiot that I was! We three had the same right to relocate the lead that other people had, provided we were quick enough. As midnight was announced, fourteen men, duly armed and ready to back their proceedings, put up their notice and proclaimed their ownership of the blind lead under the new name of Johnson. But A. D. Allen, our partner, the foreman, put in a sudden appearance about that time, with a cocked revolver in his hand, and said his name must be added to the list, or he would thin out the Johnson Company some. He was a manly, splendid, determined fellow, and known to be as good as his word and therefore a compromise was effected. They put in his name for a hundred feet, reserving to themselves the customary two hundred feet each. Such was the history of the night's events, as Higby gathered from a friend on the way home. Higby and I cleared out on a new mining excitement the next morning, glad to get away from the scene of our sufferings, and after a month or two of hardship and disappointment, returned to Esmeralda once more. Then we learned that the Wide West and the Johnson companies had consolidated, that the stock, thus united, comprised five thousand feet, or shares, that the foreman, apprehending tiresome litigation, and considering such a huge concern unwieldy, had sold his hundred feet for ninety thousand dollars in gold, and gone home to the States to enjoy it. If the stock was worth such a gallant figure, with five thousand shares in the corporation, it makes me dizzy to think what it would have been worth with only our original six hundred in it. It was the difference between six hundred men owning a house and five thousand owning it. We would have been millionaires if we had only worked with pick and spade one little day on our property, and so secured our ownership. It reads like a wild fancy sketch, but the evidence of many witnesses, and likewise that of the official records of Esmeralda District, is easily obtainable in proof that it is a true history. I can always have it to say that I was absolutely and unquestionably worth a million dollars once, for ten days, 
A year ago my esteemed and in every way estimable old millionaire partner Higby wrote me from an obscure little mining camp in California that after nine or ten years of buffetings and hard striving he was at last in a position where he could command twenty-five hundred dollars, and said he meant to go into the fruit business in a modest way. How such a thought would have insulted him the night we lay in our cabin planning European trips and brownstone houses on Russian Hill. End of chapter 41